We are taking a short summer break. We'll be back with new episodes later this month. In the meantime, we leave you with an episode from November 2021 about FINRA's historical commitment to market transparency in honor of FINRA's trade reporting and compliance engineer, Trace, which marked its 20th anniversary on July 1st. Transparency plays a central role in promoting the fairness and efficiency of U.S. markets, lowering transaction costs, leveling the playing field, and enhancing public trust in our markets. And the data market transparency provides serves as the lifeblood of FINRA's surveillance program. On this episode, we hear from two executives from FINRA's Market Regulation and Transparency Services team about FINRA's historical commitment to market transparency and how it has impacted FINRA's regulatory regime. Welcome to FINRA Unscripted. I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. I'm excited to welcome two new guests to the show from FINRA's Market Regulation and Transparency Services team. We have John Croper, Executive Vice President of the Quality of Markets Group, and Ola Person, Senior Vice President and Head of Transparency Services. As a bit of a history nerd, I'm excited for today's episode. We're going to be taking a look back at the history of FINRA's commitment to market transparency and how it has impacted our financial markets and the way FINRA regulates them. But before we get into that, Ola and John, I wanted to start out by having you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about the groups that you run. Ola, maybe we can start with you. Happy to. Hello, Caitlin. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting us. So uh, I'm actually originally from Sweden, but I spent the last 30 years here in the US. I did my undergrad at the University of Stockholm, and then I went to graduate school here in New York. So before joining FINRA, I spent 10 years with a company that at the time was called Reuters, it's now called Refinitiv, all in various aspects of their fixed income business. So data and data structure, analytics, product management. I joined FINRA in 2004 to work on the TRACE program, which is FINRA's Fixed Income and Reporting Transparency program. After a number of years, I also got involved in the equity facilities. And about three years ago, I was appointed to head of transparency services. So the department, we're responsible for operating FINRA's trade reporting and quotes facilities for equity and fixed income securities. The technical and operational aspects of that are quite considerable. We take millions of transactions. We support thousands of users across hundreds of firms. A couple of our facilities are what's considered critical market infrastructure and the SEC's rig SCI rules. So there's a significant amount of requirements that come with that. The objective is to minimize market disruptions. Besides the technical aspects and the operational aspects of running these facilities, we're also, as the name implies, we're focused on market structure issues in general and transparency in particular. Most staff in the department have quite extensive market experience, either on the business side or on the technology side. Thanks, Ola. John, how about you? Yeah. Hi. Thanks, Caitlin. And pleasure being here. And thanks for having me. I'm from an even more exotic place than Ola. I'm from Jersey City, New Jersey. I head up the quality market section, as you said, in market regulation. I started my own career at the SEC in their division of market regulation. There, I conducted inspections of SROs. I reviewed rule filings and participated in writing some of the SEC rules in the late 90s, like the order handling rules and Reg ATS. I went to work for one of the commissioners after that. Then I went to work for a broker-dealer for six years. After that broker-dealer was sold, I went back to the SEC, worked for another commissioner, and then the chairman. And then I came to NASD in 2007, and I've been here ever since. 
And what about the Quality of Markets Group? What do they do? We're responsible for conducting automated surveillance and investigations that come out of our surveillance reviews that go to potential violations of trading-related rules, inequities, and fixed income securities. So you might ask, you know, what is surveillance at its simplest form? We run computer programs against the market data that we take in to detect specific rule compliance issues or to find other behaviors of interest. So on the equity side, we perform this role not only for FINRA, but also for all of the other equities exchanges, and there are 16 of them right now, through what we call regulatory services agreements. On the fixed income side, our surveillance covers all the fixed income products that are reported to Trace, which I will talk about in a little while, I'm sure. And we also cover municipal securities that are reported to the MSRB. So no matter what the product is, we perform four basic types of surveillance reviews. The first is regulatory reporting reviews, and those cover things like trade reporting, as our surveillance is only as good as the data that we take in. We do market conduct rules is another category that covers things like short sales and quotation requirements, and those are intended to make sure that market participants comply with all the rules of the road. We cover customer protection as well. Are customer orders being handled properly? Are they obtaining best execution? We have programs to detect that. And also the final category is market manipulation. So we look at things like marking the clothes, wash sales, front running, and a myriad of other scenarios. So we have about 100 surveillance reviews that we conduct, and many of these have multiple scenarios under them. And we have a lot of partners within FINRA to help us do our work. We work with technology to develop and refine our surveillance patterns. We work with enforcement in those situations where our matters may turn into formal actions. We coordinate closely with the exam teams at FINRA to ensure that all the bases are covered and we're not duplicating efforts. And we work with Ola and his team to make sure that if there are any potential changes to the transparency programs, we're able to evaluate what impact that has on our own surveillance program. Well, thank you for that. Ola, just to kind of kick things off, FINRA has a whole group called Transparency Services, which I think in itself is very telling. But can you help us understand the history of FINRA's efforts to increase market transparency? Sure. Maybe starting with why is transparency important? Why are we focused on it? As you know, FINRA is dedicated to protecting investors, safeguarding market integrity in a way that facilitates vibrant capital markets. And transparency is really a key component of that. Information on market activity, whether it be volume, price levels, etc., is really critical for market participants in their investment decisions and trading decisions, judging the quality of their execution, risk analysis, and a whole host of other areas. The equity markets have a long tradition of transparency, and more recently, relatively speaking, we also introduced transparency to parts of the fixed income market. And the effects of that have been very positive, and the academics that have had a chance to study it during the rollout, and it's reduced bid-ask spreads, which is generally associated with more liquid markets. It's reduced trade execution costs for investors. It's leveled the playing field and allowed smaller regional dealers to compete more effectively. And it's also improved the precision in the valuation of these securities. So transparency generally has had a very positive impact on the market. Taking a step back, though, from a regulatory perspective, just collecting this data is very beneficial. There are facts on how the market operates, how the instruments trade, levels of market participation, etc., that we can observe and we can use that in formulating policy proposals. The third benefit is in John's area that collecting this information enables the surveillance and oversight, which really is the cornerstone in FINRA's mission to ensure investor protection and market integrity. 
you have mentioned that FINRA operates facilities for different markets. Can you talk a little bit about the breadth of that coverage and how it has evolved over time? You mentioned equities. It has a longer history than bonds. Generally speaking, at FINRA, we focus on transactions that are executed over the counter or off exchange. It really breaks down into three distinct markets where we operate different facilities. The first one is actually listed equities, which is also known as the NMS market. A significant portion of transactions in listed equity securities actually takes place off the exchange, over the counter. And we have facilities for member firms to report those transactions to. There are also markets that don't trade exchange at all and that we have facilities for as well. The first one is unlisted equities, by definition, all over the counter. And the fixed income markets, as I mentioned, are all over the counter markets. So if you look at it, the historical context is the equity markets have been transparent for quite a while. And the NASDAQ goes back many decades at this point. And equity markets have history dating back from the time prior to NASD and NASDAQ separated. Specifically in the NMS space, the listed equities, we created what's called trade reporting facilities, so TRFs, and that allows reporting and dissemination of over-the-counter transactions in listed equities. These facilities are really partnerships between FINRA and the exchange. We have three of them today. We have two in NASDAQ and one in NICE. And then we have our own facility called the Display Facility. But on any given day, over 40% of volume in listed activities are executed off exchange and goes to one of these facilities. It's also of note, the data from that comes out of these facilities for transparency purposes is distributed together with the exchange data and what's called the secure disinformation processor. That data reaches a very large audience. We have over 250,000 professional users. I think it's over 6 million non-professional users at this point. So it gets a very wide distribution. The other area is unlisted equities. There was a refreshment of the rule set in the mid-90s. And then when NESD and NASDAQ separated, FINRA maintained these facilities. So we brought with us a facility called the ORFO, which is a counter-reporting facility, and also a facility for quotation, something known as the OTC Bulletin Board. The Bulletin Board was actually closed earlier this month, but we've operated it otherwise since then. The unlisted market is actually relatively big. It's some 18,000 instruments, everything from small domestic companies to ADRs and foreign securities. We see around 600,000 trades any given day reported to ORF. The data coming out of ORF is also distributed, co-mingled with the listed data in the SIPs, so it also gets a very wide distribution. The other critical function we perform in unlisted equities, we're responsible for declaring corporate actions, so name changes, stock splits, dividends, etc., and in that market, the corporate action is not considered effective until we've declared it. So it's a very critical function. So these securities can trade orderly. And fixed income, relatively new in historical context, but nonetheless, a couple of decades. FINRA launched Trace in 2002. Initially, it was covering corporate bonds. Since then, we've expanded to agency debenture, asset and mortgage-backed securities, and most recently to treasuries. Trace was created for all the reasons I mentioned up front. It was to level the playing field among market participants. It was to provide regulators with the information to enable surveillance and oversight. It was to increase the knowledge of the market and create the foundation for developing policy. Trace has increased gradually. We've added these asset classes. And every time we add an asset class, we've been also gradually facing in transparency. And there's been a number of benefits to that is it gives us a chance to study the impact of transparency as we roll it out. 
And the other one is to allow market participants a chance to get used to the new environment, new levels of transparency and how that may affect the business. And it seems like the requirements for these different products and asset classes, they vary. Why is that? There are many forms of transparency. I think generally we think of transaction-level information being disseminated to market participants, and that is the case for a vast majority of the markets. But we also publish a significant amount of aggregated information on all markets with OTC activity in listed equities, in non-listed equities, instead of fixed income. A good example of that are the aggregated volume reports for treasuries that we publish. We worked very closely with the Department of Treasury to develop those, and then we positively received in the market. But we do also recognize that there are distinct differences between markets and products. And maybe in particular in fixed income, there are some very unique aspects to certain products, in particular in the securitized space, how they're structured, issued, traded. So we take a nuanced approach in the analysis when we evaluate what kind of potential transparency may be appropriate for a specific product. So transparency, while important, is not one size fits all. It's not one size fits all, correct. And... John, how did the introduction of these facilities that Ola's been talking about impact FINRA from a regulatory point of view? Yeah. So, you know, data is the lifeblood of the surveillance program that we operate. The more data that we have available to us, the more we can do with it to improve our oversight of the markets. Otherwise, you know, we can only evaluate behavior on a firm-by-firm basis through exams or some other means. Unless we went out to all the firms ask for their information, put it all together, maybe in different formats, and then try to run reviews on top of that, which would be very inefficient and would be burdensome on us and the market participants. It wouldn't really be practical to perform on any sort of regular basis or any kind of scale at all. So things like Trace give us transaction reports for all or almost all market participants in one standardized format. We can run our reviews on all the market activity at once and compare the behavior across firms And we can then identify firms that are the outliers in performance or engaging in possibly problematic behaviors. So it's really, truly the bedrock of our surveillance program, the data that we receive from all these different facilities. And just to underscore the point, one size does not fit all. There is different character to each of the markets that we regulate and the context and the data that we bring in differs for each one. So we do adapt our programs accordingly. There are other things that we've used the data for as well. It's not only for surveillance, but also in formulating our regulatory policy and also to support whatever rulemaking we need to conduct and also forms the basis of the academic research on the marketplace. And one element of the surveillance program, an important source, is OATS, the Order Audit Trail System. Can you tell me a little bit about that, why it was established and the purpose it served? Yeah, absolutely. The roots of OATS went back to the order handling rules that the SEC issued back in the late 90s in response to the market maker collusion that occurred in the over-the-counter market. So as a result, the SEC wanted NASD at the time to be able to surveil the markets to make sure the customer orders were handled appropriately. So what OATS is, is a way of collecting the life cycle of information of an order from when it's initiated to when it's executed or canceled. So what happens is there are many steps in the handling of an order, comes into a firm, gets sent to a desk in the firm, may go out to another broker-dealer for handling, may go to a market maker for execution, may get routed to an exchange. And all these steps, the firms are required to report to OATS that step in the life cycle. 
and they were required to report it in a way that it could be linked together so that at FINRA, we could collect all that information together in what we call a life cycle and see from cradle to grave what happened with that order and connect that to the transaction information that we had through the FINRA facilities or information that we received from the exchanges. And how did that introduction really change the marketplace and how FINRA regulated it? Yeah, there are at least two ways it did that. So as I alluded to, OITS enables us to run surveillance in areas where customer orders that improve the quote weren't included in a market maker's quote. So better prices were available and OITS was there to be able to ensure that the market makers included those orders in their quotes. Also, initially, customer orders were traded ahead of so that if a broker dealer held a customer order and then traded for its own account, without OATS, there was no way of knowing whether that order was in hand at the time. So those were the initial purposes, but we expanded well beyond that and incorporated into pretty much all of our surveillance program. And actually, OATS was the foundation of what we wound up calling our cross-market equity surveillance program. And there we took the OATS information, combined it with the trade reports on the FINRA side, and combined it with the exchange order book information to create a virtual view of the entirety of the U.S. equities markets, and then ran all of our surveillance programs against that. So we were able to recreate the market and be able to get a comprehensive, full picture of what was going on. And it really took our program to the next level. That sounds like it had a huge impact, but what was missing and how did that limit the way FINRA oversaw markets? So there are a few things missing in notes. So it only covered equities, didn't cover options, and those markets are very interrelated with one another. So you're missing a big piece of the picture if you don't have the options information. The information related to the identity of customers, you only knew that it was a customer order. You didn't know who the customer was. There were limitations on the amount of information about market maker orders in notes. There were gaps in that life cycle that I talked about. And it only included information from FINRA member broker-dealers. Didn't include those other broker-dealers who weren't FINRA members, which were many of the HFT firms and other proprietary trading firms of that ilk and accounted for a large part of the marketplace. So recently, OATS had its very last trade reported on August 31st, 2021. Why was that? Well, you can trace the beginning of the end for OATS all the way back to May 6th, 2010, which as a history buff, you would know, was the day of the flash crash. And on that day, the Dow dropped a thousand points in a matter of minutes, only to rebound quickly. And there were a number of blue chip stocks that went almost to zero in that time frame. Everybody wanted to know the answers. So Congress, investors, the SEC. But what was lacking was a comprehensive audit trail to enable that kind of analysis to take place. We had OATS and we had OTC trade reports, but at that time, we only had NASDAQ information. We didn't have information from the other exchanges because we hadn't entered into agreements with them yet. So we had slightly less than half the market activity. So everyone wanted the answers, but there was no comprehensive audit trail available. So that started the decade-long journey that we've been on for the SEC to propose the creation of a CAT, for the rule to get approved, for the SROs to get together and develop a plan for building the CAT, to get that plan approved by the SEC, for the SROs to actually have CAT built, and for the industry members and the SROs to report to CAT. 
So at this point, we're working through the final implementation stages to CAT. There's one phase in December and another next July, and then CAT should be complete. And so how would you compare OATS and CAT? It sounds like CAT is the next level in progression of OATS. Absolutely. So CAT addresses all the limitations of OATS that I talked about earlier. CAT includes both equities and options, gives you information about the identity of the parties responsible for the market activity. So it will tell you ultimately who the customer who entered the order was, and you're able to relate that information across different customer accounts. So you know if someone is working through two different brokerage accounts to try to engage in some manipulation or try to do something else. CAT includes market maker activity, which wasn't in OATS. It provides better linkages in the life of orders. Those linkages are tighter. There aren't gaps in those linkages. And CAT includes activity from all broker-dealers, just not FINRA members. So the promise of CAT is that it's going to provide us with the ability to be more precise with our surveillance. It'll reduce what we call false positives in the surveillance output. So we'll be more efficient. Hopefully, we'll be able to resolve many more alerts. We're having to go out to broker-dealers to get information. And it's like going from broadcast TV, if you remember that, to HDTV or 4K. It's a much clearer picture of activity on the marketplace. And then the ability to do cross-product surveillance between equities and options on a systematic basis is a game changer for all of us as well, given, as I said before, the relationship between those two products. So it sounds like a very exciting future with CAT, but OATS had a very important role in us getting to this point. So if you were to write an epitaph for OATS, what would it be? Yeah, a lot of the industry complained about OATS during its life cycle, and OATS was complicated, but it provided a lot of value. So it'd be something like, you are unappreciated by many, but you're greatly valued by those who knew better. I love it. That's perfect. Now, Ola, can you tell me a little bit more about some of the recent efforts to enhance our ability to oversee the markets and tell me more about Trace for Treasuries and what's happening there? Trace for Treasuries, we initiated the trade reporting for FINRA members in Treasuries back in 2017. The impetus for that was a little bit similar to what John just described for CAT. There was a bit of an unexplained burst of volatility in the Treasuries a number of years ago, and I think regulators who prefer to have more data to look at and understand why those events may occur. So FINRA members have been reporting since 2017. We've been working very closely with the Department of Treasury and the Fed during this time, both to make sure to work through the data and explain the data. And also we worked with them to start releasing aggregate level information in the market. We publish weekly aggregate volume reports on on our website, which have been very well received. One key development that occurred very recently is that the Fed adopted rules for a commercial bank that meets certain thresholds to report the transactions to trace in what's known as exempt securities. And for the purpose of today, exempt securities are really treasuries, agency debentures, and agency mortgage-backed securities. And this is a very big step in the right direction. This rule takes effect in September of next year, and it will provide then a complete picture of market activity in these securities since Extend securities can be traded, obviously, by FINRA members, but also by commercial banks. So this is a big step to get the complete picture. We also worked with the members of the interagency working group in enhancing certain aspects of the trace data. We did put out a regulatory notice seeking comments. We're working through that now and see how we can prioritize them. But that is a joint effort with them, trying to collect information on this market that is relevant to evaluate the activity. 
And so you mentioned big new changes to increase the scope of trades for treasuries, but are there any other current limitations that might be addressed in the future? Chairman Gensler spoke about this at a conference yesterday. High-frequency trading firms are active in treasury securities, and particularly on the runs. They trade through the IDBs, mostly the interdealer brokers platforms. Interdealer brokers can identify the firms in the data, but it's not consistent across the platform. And Chairman Gensler spoke about potentially registering high-frequency trading firms, which would then give them a reporting obligation in this context, which would be a great deal of help. And John, I'm sure you're excited to just have more pieces to the puzzle. Absolutely. As Lola said, the market is dominated by firms that are high-frequency trading type firms. And to have more granular information about the executions that occur in those markets definitely give us more pieces of the puzzle and it makes for better surveillance and oversight overall. At the end of the day, how does the data here inform FINRA's policy-making decisions? Generally speaking, and John can jump in, the data is the foundation because you can empirically observe what's taking place in the market. You can see how transactions are executed. You can see dealer behaviors. There's a a series of measures you can take a look at and you can pinpoint if something appears to be problematic, you can dive into it, but then also does the data support your observations, so to speak. It's a great tool to use as a foundation for pinpoint where we may want to focus or if issues are brought up with us, we can go and validate them based on the data. The other side of that coin is obviously hugely beneficial. If you do make policy changes, you now have a way of measuring the impact of those policy changes. So both those two pieces are critical. Yeah, and I'd also make clear that increasing transparency is something we see as improving things for investors and our ability to oversee the markets. But in terms of evaluating policy changes, we're always you know, very cognizant of the impact those changes might have on market participants who are required to report as they may need to make changes to their systems in order to do so or make changes to their workflow. So there's always a cost-benefit analysis that we go through. We solicit comment from the public on all such proposals, and they're generally subject to review by the SEC as well. And given that it is a burden for firms to implement new policies and procedures, just to wrap things up, at the end of the day, why does it matter? Why are we doing this? And why is transparency so important? Back to the beginning, there are significant benefits of transparency to market participants, to the regulatory program, to our general knowledge about how markets operate and why. So we always work to ensure that the programs that we have really reflect the market the way it operates. So we also spend a lot of time developing the programs because the markets continually evolve. And the unlisted market is a great example. We actually closed down the bulletin board because business has migrated onto commercial platforms that allow for more electronic interactions. But we also look at the market conventions and how they develop and how that's reflected in the data. So, for example, in the fixed income space, we've seen significant growth in portfolio trading. So we got a recommendation looking at changes there. We put a regulatory notice seeking comment. We spoke to a number of participants. So we're looking to evolve the program as the markets evolve. So there are significant benefits to transparency to market participants, savings to investors, but also to the integrity of the market through our ability to surveil behaviors in the market. Yeah, absolutely. It goes back to Fender's mission. So the data enables us to better protect investors through running our surveillance and conducting our exam programs and giving investors the information they need to make wise investment decisions. 
And it also enables us to promote market integrity through the reviews that we conduct. Maybe all businesses should spend more time not just celebrating new initiatives, but when old programs and initiatives come to an end because the company has realized they have reached the end of their useful life. Ola and John, thank you so much for joining me to walk through the history of FINRA's commitment to transparency and how it impacts the market regulation program. Listeners, you'll have to stay tuned for a future episode that delves a little bit more into some exciting technology that is being applied to the market surveillance patterns that John mentioned earlier. So if you don't already, be sure to subscribe to FINRA Unscripted wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be notified when that comes out. If you have any ideas for future episodes or thoughts to share on today's episode, you can email us at finraunscripted at finra.org. Today's episode was produced by me, Caitlin Kiernan, edited and coordinated by Stephanie Vandenberg, and engineered by John Williams. That's it for today's episode. Until next time. Please note, FINRA podcasts are the sole property of FINRA, and the information provided is for informational and educational purposes only. The content of the podcast does not constitute any FINRA rule or amendment or interpretation to such rules. Compliance with any recommended conduct presented does not mean that a firm or person has complied with the full extent of their obligations under FINRA rules, the rules of any other SRO, or securities laws. This podcast is provided as is. FINRA and its affiliates are not responsible for any human or mechanical errors or omissions. Parties may not reproduce these podcasts in any form without the express written consent of FINRA. FINRA.